If you will, uh, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue in this wonderful letter to the church in Ephesus. And this morning we will be considering verses 10 through 13. Verses 10 through 13. Let's read the word of the Lord together. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we indeed are in a mighty battle. Father, help us to take this battle seriously. Help us to be sober-minded, to know who our enemy is. But more importantly, rather than focus on who our enemy is, help us to focus on who our friend is, who are the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to stand in the power of His might. Open our eyes and our hearts to Your gospel here today. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Warfare is nothing new in our day. We see it all around. We have seen it all around. I don't think anybody in here uh, has lived in a time where they haven't seen a war somewhere on this planet. But war has been around for a very, very long time. You see, war started, as a matter of fact, when Satan and his followers rebelled against God in heaven. For the human race, warfare started the moment the serpent spoke to Eve in the garden. As we look back through history, it would seem that humans, by and large, have been on the losing end, and that is a fact we have. The vast majority of the human race has been on the losing side of this spiritual battle. It is only through the grace and by the power of the living God that any human being is put on the right side of this battle, on the winning side of this battle. We see wars between factions, gangs, tribes, ethnic groups, nations, and even groups of nations. But that's not what Paul is speaking of in this passage. He is speaking of a, not of physical human wars. He is speaking of a much more dangerous battle. And that is the battle in the spiritual realm. You know, we a lot of times don't think about that, do we? Because we're physical human beings in the physical environment around us you know that spiritual stuff is good for the spiritual realm but that what how does that affect me charles hodge writes the christian conflict is not only real it is difficult and dangerous it is one in which true believers are often grievously wounded and multitudes of reputed believers entirely succumb. End quote. He goes on to say that much of our failures occur because we fail to realize or completely ignore the serious nature of this battle. Salvation from beginning to end is entirely a work of God, but that doesn't mean that believers have nothing to do but bide their time We must be constantly on guard and constantly spiritually engaged. As Paul is coming to the end of this letter, he gives forth, as it were, a summary exhortation 
to bind the entire letter together. In the first three chapters, the apostle lays forth some very high and lofty truths about God's accomplished plan of redemption in the person and work of Jesus Christ and who the church is as she is united by faith to Christ Jesus. In chapters 4-6, through Paul tells the church now, in light of who she is united to Christ, how she is to live and walk and act and think. Paul outlines for us in this wonderful letter who God is. God is a God who saves sinners. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Chapter 1-7 God is a loving God. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God is a unifying God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The God that Paul shows us in this wonderful letter, is a graciously giving God. And He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Chapters, chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And so Paul, and, and that's not an all-inclusive list of what Paul has told us about God in this wonderful letter. But then Paul also tells us, Because of who God is, because of what He has done, and because of who we are, united by faith to Christ. As the church, what we are exhorted to do, we are exhorted to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. We are exhorted to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Chapter 4, verses 22-24 We are exhorted to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Chapter 4, verse 32 We are exhorted to walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul exhorts us to look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. We're going to see that again in our passage today. The evil day. The days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Chapters 5, verses 2 and 15 through 21. And so you see, we have these great truths about who God is. These great and wonderful, high and lofty truths about what God has accomplished for His people, the church. But then in light of all that, we have all these exhortations on how we as the church of the living God are to live, to walk, to act towards each other. Paul then 
will now exhort the church at Ephesus and all Christians to prepare for battle. You know, as we see the the crescendo building in in the first three chapters, and then we kind of almost get a letdown when we start chapter 4, and then then the crescendo builds up again uh, on this, this great and glorious task that we are embarking on as the church, and we expect some wonderful, glorious ending. But rather than do that, Paul gives us a a very sober warning. The Christian life is not all peaches and cream. It's not let go and let God. It's a battle. R.C. Sprawl was known to say that He never knew that nor understood that until he actually was converted. He thought life was hard before he was converted and realized that no, it wasn't. And I'm assuming that if you know the Lord Jesus Christ in a saving relationship, that's the same for you. Because we are, dear ones, engaged in a battle. We do have a very dangerous enemy. It is my hope and prayer that we will be awakened, if we're not already, to the seriousness of this spiritual warfare. And that we will not attempt to stand on our own, nor in our own strength. We as the body of Christ must remain united in this struggle. We must rightly use the battle equipment that God has given to us for our safety and our well-being. In our text today, we will carefully consider the nature of this warfare. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Finally. The word finally here signals that the apostle is about to bring this letter to a close. He's going to sum up everything that he said and put it all together with several exhortations. Finally, doesn't just tie what Paul has already said and what he will say next. If that were the case, he would use his familiar word, what? Therefore. No, he says finally. It is a summary statement of command. It is a fitting ending to a wonderfully powerful letter. He writes, finally, be strong in the Lord. As Paul starts this exhortation, we must keep in mind that this is an exhortation to the church. That's important. This is not an exhortation to individual Christians, although it does apply to individual Christians. This is an exhortation to the church. When I think of this, I always get the, that, that little picture I saw going around Facebook. It, it showed a picture of a herd of zebras. Standing there by the watering hole, looking on as one little zebra is running from a pride of lions. And I think the statement was, if being a Christian on your own was a picture. This is an exhortation to the church. This is a battle that consumes, and, and not consumes necessarily, but involves the church. We stand together in this battle. There is strength in numbers. You are not to be engaged in this battle out on your own. Nor in your own strength. Yes, we as individual Christians are to be strong in the Lord. Yes, I'm not denying that. I'm not saying that's not the case. But how are we as individual Christians to be strong in the Lord? By taking advantage of and using rightly the means of grace that God has given to His church. You are not the church by yourself. You are the church when you are united to Christ in faith with a local community of believers. And that's exactly who Paul is writing to in this letter. Not individual Christians 
You never see, well, there's no soldier in his right mind who would put on his armor and then go out and fight alone. That's suicide, is it not? You know, we have the saying that there is strength in numbers, and that's a true saying. The Bible says that. Our dear brother Jacob, when he was giving us our devotion for big this last meeting, pointed that out. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Ecclesiastes 4.12 In the context of the church, namely discipline, but in the context of the church, Jesus himself said, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Matthew 18.20 To be in union with Christ Jesus means that the church has at her disposal. Listen. Means that the church, if we are united to Christ by faith, we have at our disposal the very power of Christ Jesus when it comes to this spiritual battle. Otherwise, Paul would never exhort us to stand in the power of his might. Just as Christ prevailed in the desert, just as He prevailed in Jerusalem, just as He prevailed in Gethsemane, just as He was victorious at the cross, so too the church has the power to stand against Satan and his evil forces. To think anything else is to think wrongly. To to go anywhere else for strength and power is to stray. Paul is very clear here. Finally, be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. It is in the Lord's strength and in His power that we stand. But what is this strength? What is this power? The captain of our salvation himself emphatically declared, Be courageous. I have conquered the world. John 16.33 Jesus said that. He has conquered the world. Can Can you imagine his disciples? Yes. And then in a few hours they see him dying on the cross. Jesus wasn't talking about a physical conquest. Jesus was talking about binding the strong man. Plundering his goods. Jesus has conquered the world. Moses sang of this powerful God, even in the Old Testament. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now we know in that context he's talking about Pharaoh and his army who were overthrown and destroyed in the Red Sea. But there was a spiritual battle going on there that the Lord was fighting against the gods, the false gods of Egypt, right? Hence the plagues. And the Lord was victorious. He's a mighty God. No one is able to stay His hand. The psalmist declared, The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. Psalm 37, verses 39-40. through And we see this throughout, especially in the psalms. But we see this throughout. But one of my favorite, one of my favorite pictures of the might and power of the Lord is actually in the coronation song in Psalm 24. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. 
a picture of his power and his might, of his conquering. He, he's the conquering. He's, he's entering heaven being crowned as the conquering hero. He's not going there as the suffering servant, but the conquering hero. And it is this same Jesus, this same conquering hero, that the living word of God declares, at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In Philippians chapter 2, it is, his, it is in His power, it is in His might, that we are to stand, that we are to take hope, take courage, and resist the devil. Not, not in your own strength. Not by yourself. Most definitely. But as a church. As a congregation. We stand in the strength of his might. The Lord Jesus Christ. The head of the church. What did Jesus promise the disciples? Upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not because we're strong, but because He is all-powerful. And He is the strength of His church. And so that's the friendly situation. We are united to Christ in faith. And we have at our disposal the very power of God in Christ for the spiritual battle. A shame on us if we don't avail ourselves of that. Because if we don't, we will fall. How many times have we seen professing Christians, especially in the public eyes, fall? We've seen that throughout the decades, over and over again. Pride. Reliance on self. Those things cause these falls because they are not availing themselves of the means of grace that God has given to His church. If you think, I don't care who you are, a pastor, a deacon, a private citizen, you can know the Bible from front to back. You can be a very versed, well-versed in the Word of God. But if you think you can stand on your own, you will fall. If you think you are stronger than Satan, if you think you're stronger than even the weakest of his demons, you are mistaken. Yes, they are created beings, but they're stronger than you, they're stronger than me. They're not human Paul's going to describe that for us next in verses 11 and 12. He writes, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. There it is. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is not talking about wicked world governments. This is not talking about uh, the society that's running lawless around us. This is talking about demons. Demonic forces. If you don't believe in demons, you're already, you're already in very dangerous waters. I can't remember the, 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 the specific... Um, seminary that it was but and I don't even remember the year but it wasn't too long ago they took a poll of the seminary students as they were entering this seminary and then polling the same students as they were graduating and it was I think over 70% 
of those who are graduating had changed their minds and no longer believed that Satan was real. That's, that's a seminary. If you don't believe Satan's real, you're in very dangerous waters. Because he is a real enemy. I was talking to some, uh, one young man years ago. He, he was a self-proclaimed, I, I, and I don't even understand the, the, how this is put together, a self-proclaimed atheist and, and Satan worshiper. And so I, I asked him, I said, so you literally worship Satan? What, what does that entail? He said, well, oh, Satan's not a person. It's just a concept. And I felt sorry for that young man. I tried to explain to him, no, Satan is real. <laughs> and he has you fast in his grips. Satan is real. Paul writes about Satan here in this passage as if he is real because he is. The Bible clearly defines that Satan is real. Now, let's expel the myth right here. Satan and God are not on equal terms. Okay? You know, like some religions teach good versus evil. And it's up to us to, 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 to balance the scale, right? No. Satan is a created being. He's not all-powerful. He's not, not omnipresent. And I'll be honest with you, I don't even think I, I, as a pastor, I don't even rate Satan's personal attention. Because he can only be in one place at one time. But like I said before, his, his weakest demon is stronger than me. But Satan here, as Paul is speaking of, he's speaking of not just Satan, not just the devil, but of the demonic forces. against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the heavenly places doesn't mean literally in heaven. It just means in the spiritual realm. We are fighting against what? First, the schemes of the devil. What, what are the schemes of the devil? We have many examples in Scripture. I'm sure we could use our imagination to think of a lot of schemes of the devil. Okay. You eating that second cupcake is not, not necessarily the schemes of the devil, even though you might say the devil made me do it. No, it's much more serious than that. How about, let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Satan's first attack on humanity was questioning the word of God. And it's a continual attack today. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Attacking the word of God. And that goes on today too, right? Did Jesus really say that he was the only way to God? You don't need Jesus. Just live the best you can in whatever religion you want to and you'll be okay. Satan seeks to malign the character of God and to point the people to the point where people deny the very existence of God. It attacks the word of God. Then he attacks the character of God. And then he tries to eradicate God in the minds of the people. Those are pretty serious schemes of the devil. Why is it that we sin? It's because in that moment we believe the lie rather than keeping our eyes on the truth. Right? We believe the lie that that particular sin will somehow make us better, make us feel better, make us happy, right? We believe the lie. Did God really say that adultery is a sin? Aren't we supposed to love everybody? Did, did God really say that murder is a sin? I mean, what if we have to, you know, 
People deserve to die, right? Did God really say? We saw in, uh, in our lesson this morning in, in Bible study hour, right? The, where he was talking about the liberals, the moderates, or what did they call them? Moderates, didn't they call them? That were starting to attack the word of God. You know, it's okay that, that we can believe that the word became flesh, but do we have to believe that he, it was through a virgin? You see how they start attacking the word of God. That's, that's the schemes of the devil. If he can discredit the word of God, then he can get the people to totally dismiss God altogether. We've seen that in our nation. We have kicked God, you know, we said God bless America, but we've kicked him out of every institution. We've kicked him out of everything. Schools, courts, everywhere. And yet we say, God bless America. <laughs> One of Satan's schemes is he seeks to marginalize the gospel to the point of eradicating it altogether. And we see some major religious figures doing that on public television, right? Well, you don't have to be Christian to go to heaven. You just... You know, just do the best you can, right? And that mind, and that mindset is rampant, especially in this country. A lot of people think the only thing you need to do to, do to go to heaven is die, right? Yes. That's sad, because at that moment, the, the vast majority aren't going to heaven. They're entering judgment, eternal judgment. Eternal wrath. Satan loves promoting the lusts of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Look at Satan's attack in Jesus in the desert, in the wilderness, right? The lust of the flesh. You can turn these rocks into bread. I know you're hungry, right? The lust of the eyes. Look, look at all this stuff. I'll give it to you. The pride of life. Cast yourself off this temple. The angels will catch you. You won't get hurt. You see, those attacks started in the garden and continue today. And Jesus actually perfectly, as it were, repelled those attacks. So, when Paul says, stand in the strength of his might, we stand in the power of one who's already defeated the schemes of the devil. Why would we look to anyone else for our power and our strength? Make no mistake, this is, this is a very serious fight. In my opinion, I think that the most dangerous scheme of Satan is to convince Christians, professing Christians, that he don't exist. Right? If you don't think poisonous snakes exist, you're not going to watch where you're walking in the woods, right? Especially around here. No, you need to be watchful because they exist. Satan exists. That's why we are exhorted to, to stand firm against his schemes. As our as, as millennialists, we would say that Satan is currently bound. Jesus is bound a strong man, is even now plundering his goods. The dragon has been bound and thrown into the pit. We say yes and amen. He is on a chain. As uh, Ryan said the other day, he's on the Lord's chain. <laughs> is he not? I, I always get that picture. If you read Pilgrim's Progress, you know Pilgrim's coming up to, to, the, to the castle, right? And, and he sees these two lions. Now, he doesn't realize that they're chained. He doesn't see the chains. All he sees is these fierce lions, and he's afraid. And the steward of the house tells him, no, just keep in the middle of the path. Don't be afraid. Where's your faith? <laughs> right? Satan is on a chain, but it's possible for us to get within his reach. You remember the old Tom and Jerry cartoons? And that dog that was always there. 
And Tom, the, I don't remember what the names of the Tom, the, who was Tom and who was Jerry, but the cat would go out there and the dog would come out, ar, 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 but he'd be right at the end of his chain. And so the cat would draw a line and he'd come up to the line and the dog would come out and he'd smack him with a board or something. Well, when he wasn't looking, the mouse went and erased that line and went in and drew it in, further in. And then what happened? He came to the line, but he was now within reach of the dog. Yes, Satan is on a chain. But it's our responsibility to stay out of his reach. Because he does prowl around as a, a roaring lion seeking people to devour. Not, not people that he already owns, but the people of God. Those are his targets. We are his targets. This is a serious battle. The word wrestle that Paul uses here denotes a serious hand-to-hand combat. A life or death struggle. This is not, okay, I tap out, let me go. This is more like the gladiators in, in, in the arena that somebody's going to die. This is a serious struggle. I, I can't emphasize enough how serious it is. How dangerous it is not to take this battle seriously. Do not allow your pride to cause you to attempt this battle in your own strength. You will definitely lose. I don't care how strong you think you are. I don't care how much knowledge of of Scripture you have. You go after Satan in your own strength. You will lose. Do not let yourself be lulled into a false sense of security. Satan will attack you when you least expect it. Or one of his demons will. Has anyone ever read the Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis? That's a pretty good book. <laughs> it, it goes on and on and on about the different attacks of the demons. How they attack the people of God. How they use our own um, weaknesses against us. And that's what he does. Remember the words that Christ spoke to the Apostle Paul? My grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. We must, in humility, know our weakness and turn to Christ for strength and rely on His grace. That's why Paul says, stand in the power of his might. Because Satan is a created being, he's finite, he's not omnipresent, he cannot be in more than one place at one time, but he has help. He commands hordes of demons. We are told in the Bible, a third of the angels fell when Satan fell, did they not? We don't know how many angels there are. I do know this, there was 2,000 at least demons in one man that went into a herd of pigs. Remember that, that story? We know there are lots of demons. Probably, they probably outnumber humanity. Paul says the evil day. He references here the evil day. We're in this battle against an evil force. And he calls it the evil day. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. You see in verses 10 through 13 Paul issues two commands. First, Christians are to be strong and stand firm in the power of Christ's might. Second, Christians are to put on the whole armor of God. Why? Paul tells us that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. What is this evil day? The evil day is now. Paul has already said in this letter, we are in the evil days. The evil day is now. The evil day is when Satan can still get you. When his demonic forces can still get you. 
We're not safe until we're home. You know, the, the, all those little sports that we used to play as kids? Come free. Come in free to home. And you'll be safe, right? We're not safe until we get home. We're in the evil day. The evil day is any day that you can be attacked by d- these demonic forces. As Hodge points out, this is not merely a reference to that great and final battle. It is a duty of Christians to be ready now, to be presently engaged in the spiritual warfare now, each and every day, to be on our guard against the wiles of the devil. Dear ones, we cannot afford to become complacent. Complacency kills. I've learned that in 20 years in the military service. You become complacent, you're in trouble. Because it's when you are complacent, when you're not looking around, when you're not prepared, when you're not on your guard, that you will be attacked. The Apostle Peter gives this exhortation of warning. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 And Paul says, And having done all, to stand firm. Now this seems like a, a, a tall task, is it not? This seems like a daunting um, mission. It, to some it might even seem like an exercise in futility. If Satan's this powerful, if all his demons are this powerful, well, where does that leave us? In the power of Christ's might. Because James tells us, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will what? Flee from you. Why? Because you have submitted yourself to God. You are standing firm in the power of Christ's might. We can be victorious. By God's grace and help, we will be victorious in this spiritual battle. When I was in the army, we had what was called an operations order. called an op board for short. And there were many, many elements of this operations order. But some of the key elements were the enemy situation, the friendly situation, and the necessary equipment to accomplish the mission, right? Well, that's what Paul gives us in this passage, does he not? He gave us the friendly situation. (laughs) We have Christ on our side, the very captain of our salvation who has already defeated Satan. But he gives us the enemy situation too, right? We are up against a formidable foe. A a strong force. And next Lord's Day, our Lord willing, we will look at the equipment that we have been given for this battle, for this fight. It's kind of interesting how much of a, what we do in everyday life, and even in the military, kind of mirrors what we already have seen in Scripture, right? <laughs> but we're giving an op order now. Our friendly situation is we belong to Christ. The enemy situation is Satan is a formidable foe, and he commands hordes of evil forces. Now, these evil forces aren't just demonic. Satan uses societies. Satan uses world governments. He is called the prince of this world. And everyone that doesn't belong to Christ belongs to him. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? You are of your father, the devil. If you are not found in Christ Jesus, you are in Satan. You're in Adam. You belong to Satan. He is your prince. Why serve a prince when you can serve a king? 
if you do not have a saving relationship to Jesus Christ, you are still an enemy. You are on the wrong side. You are on the losing side. And that loss will be punished for all eternity. You know, this is not one of those battles where those, the losers will be incorporated back into society. No. That loss will be eternal. The loss of God's favorable presence. The loss of God's forgiveness. The loss of God's fellowship. Forever. The Bible very clearly tells us to be on Satan's side is to be on the losing side. If you come to the end of your life on that side, you will forever be on that side. You can't change your mind. You can't change your way. It's too late then. It's too late then. What a sobering thought. If you come to your life, the end of your life, an enemy of Christ, you will forever suffer the wrath of God in hell. There is not a more hopeless situation to be in. You can't have a physical hopeless situation in this life that's more hopeless than that spiritual reality. While you yet live, however, there is still hope. While you yet draw breath that God, by the way, gives you, there is still hope. You see, Jesus came to this earth to seek and save the lost. That was his primary mission. To seek and save the lost. He lived the perfect life, thus fulfilling the law of God. The law that we have broken. Then he died a substitutionary death. The death that we deserve. He died for sinners on a bloody Roman cross. And he was buried. According to scriptures. And according to many eyewitnesses. And three days later he rose in power and glory and victory. And he's now seated at the very right hand of God Almighty, God the Father, praying for sinners, praying for his people. The Bible says that if you will repent of your sins and in faith come to Christ for salvation. The Bible says you will be saved. Repent and believe today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. No one here, not a single one of us, is guaranteed that we will be alive even by the end of this day. We just assume it. We take for granted that God won't end us. You could lose your life on your way home, driving home. You could have a massive heart attack or stroke any moment. Any number of ways God could use to take you out of this life. You don't know that you will draw breath still tonight or tomorrow morning. The Bible says, seek God while he may be found. He only may be found while you are still alive. Oh, you'll find him after you die. Or more importantly, he will find you. And you will be in the hands of an angry God. Repent of your sins today and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear saints of the living Christ, I want to close with the words of the hymn writer. Of course, we'll sing this hymn after. Lead on, O King Eternal. This should be our cry, right? Because we are to stand against the devil. And we must follow our leader. Lead on, O King Eternal. We follow not with fears. For gladness breaks like morning. 
where your face appears. Your cross is lifted o'er us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, we beg for your help in this battle. Would you give us the eyes to see the seriousness of this battle? And as Elisha prayed to to open the eyes of his servant, would you open our eyes that we would know and understand the perilous times in which we live? And as a, a community of believers, Father, would you strengthen us together for this battle? Would you help us to to be on guard, to watch with each other, watch one another, and to help where help is needed? Would you cause us to stand in the strength of Christ and the power of His might, for He is truly the conquering hero. And in faith, we are told we can have victory. Our faith is the victory. In Christ. Father, would you look into each and every heart here today? Would you convict sinners? Would you convict us all of our sin? Help us to repent. Would you bring everyone to a saving faith in Christ? Would you cause us to flee to Christ daily as we seek to crucify the flesh and live for you? for your honor and for your glory. Would you do this for the sake of your church, the edifying of your saints, and most importantly, for your eternal glory, for you are worthy. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you'd stand and sing with me hymn 124, Lead on, O King Eternal.